Father's Day in June. Seems like something of an afterthought, doesn't it? Mothers! And then, oh yeah, fathers. Historically, it appears that it was something of an afterthought, or maybe best to say that it was not an afterthought so much as an understandable extension of Mother's Day celebrations. The first Father's Day service was held on July 5th, 1908, at what was then the Williams Memorial Methodist Episcopal Church and what is now the Central United Methodist Church of Fairmont, West Virginia. As the first Mother's Day service was held in the church just a couple months prior to that date, and as one woman there sought a way to commemorate the hundreds of men who had died in a mining explosion that year, many of them fathers, she, along with the minister, hit upon the idea of having a Father's Day service. The next year, Sonora Smart Dodd of Spokane, Washington, not aware of the service that had been held in West Virginia, came up with the idea on her own. Her mother had died in childbirth when Sonora was just 16, after which Sonora helped her father raise the younger six children. As she listened to a Mother's Day sermon, she wondered why there was not a corresponding celebration of fathers. She approached the Spokane, Washington Ministerial Alliance with her idea, and a Father's Day was celebrated June 19, 1910, in Spokane, Washington. <coughs> in 1916, President Woodrow Wilson visited Spokane and spoke at Father's Day services. In 1966, 50 years later, this took a little while to gather steam. President Lyndon Johnson signed a presidential proclamation declaring the third Sunday of June as Father's Day. In 1972, President Nixon established a permanent national observance of Father's Day to be held on the third Sunday of June each year. On June 9, 2008, the House of Representatives passed a bill that calls on fathers across the United States to use Father's Day to reconnect and rededicate themselves to their children's lives, to spend Father's Day with their children, and to express their love and support for their children. <coughs> Excuse me. In that same year, 2008, in a still popular speech, President Obama used the holiday as a springboard to call fathers to take responsibility for their children. Most often quite careful and precise in his choice of words, he slipped into a common Father's Day pitfall. He said, we need fathers to realize that what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child, it's the courage to raise one. Now what he most likely meant is that what makes you a father in the full and most moral sense of the word, is not the ability to have a child, which is nothing more than involuntary biological potential, but the courage to raise a child, which is the voluntary intentional assumption of responsibility and connection. That, was, that is what makes you a father, a parent. No argument there. What he said was, 
what makes you a man. And two, while it's true that being a father is not what makes you a man, it is no less true that fathers often supply a model for their children for better or worse as to what it means to be a man and how masculinity is expressed. Ironically enough, one of the unspoken rules about being a man that circulates throughout culture is that men don't talk about things like what it means to be a man. We have a hard time even expressing what it's like to be a man. And the answers that are offered from the culture about how to be a man are confusing at best. With the women's movement, we had the rise of the sensitive male. We are now in the midst of an ugly backlash against the lessons of that time, where political correctness now sounds as bad as chauvinism and sexism once did. And bullying is not only accepted but modeled at the highest levels of government. While the Me Too movement has brought light to the ongoing and pervasive abuse caused by a deeply distorted sense of masculinity and power and entitlement and fueled by the collaborative silence of far too many good men. The expectations regarding masculinity, confusing enough on their own, are complicated by the manipulations of those promoting consumerism, fundamentalism, militarism, and of course, sexism. Boys growing up are made to feel guilty about the harms that men have wrought and then to react against the imposition of this guilt by defiantly perpetuating the same behaviors in men that have caused such pain in the first place. And in the midst of this, there is a pressure felt maybe most intensely upon becoming a father that one should have a firm handle on what is right what is required, what is best, what is acceptable, what is successful, and just what it is to be a man. So what is it then to be a man? And why does it feel so dangerous to ask the question? Why is it so hard for me to explore, to articulate? Why does it feel like a question that shouldn't be asked at the same time that there is an expectation that men should know the answer. On the one hand, outside of the obvious biological differences of the sexes, there is a perspective that people are people, and gender as a social construct is somewhat meaningless. On the other hand, there is the popularized notion in a very dualistic understanding of gender that men and women are from different planets, if, if not different solar systems, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. We've all heard that. With all of the insights into, into the different ways that men and women process information and communicate emotion and express or not what they need from one another. It strikes me that one of the strongest arguments for the reality of gender differences comes from our transgender siblings who know that their own gender identity does not correspond to the gender assigned to them. There is a difference. 
There are differences, I should say, in opening up to a much wider acceptance of gender identity and expression only highlights the fact that gender, however we name it, is an important component to one's self-understanding and connections with the wider world. And men need to come to grips with a male identity amidst the reality of the lived experience of a patriarchal system. It is, as the song says, a man's world. Not because it should be, not because it is inherently so, only because men have held and organized society such that they keep power. Men have been in control. How's that working for us? Songwriter Loudon Wainwright III says in one of his songs entitled Men, it's the men who have the power, it's the men who have the might, and the world's a place of horror because each man thinks he's right. And the unfortunate thing is that a great deal of subtle and not so subtle teaching about manhood has only perpetuated this horror. To this day, there is an expectation that to be a man is to be certain, to be open to ideas, to expanding awareness, to expressing emotions other than anger or pride is not masculine. Along with the irresponsible absence of fathers, which President Obama spoke of, I also wish to point out the harm that can can be caused by irresponsible judgment, an immovable certainty, a self-righteous rigidity about what is right. Pete's reading of Kafka's letter to his father captures this latter harm. What was always incomprehensible to me was your total lack of feeling for the suffering and shame you could inflict on me with your words and judgments. It was as though you had no notion of your own power. An episode of a former PBS program, Now, from 2008, focused on American soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder who were discharged from the Army for pre-existing personality disorders or misconduct, leaving the Army free from making good on benefits and even, incredibly, leaving the soldiers having to pay back thousands of dollars in enlistment bonuses. Chuck Luther was a combat scout in Iraq, an extremely dangerous position. Four soldiers in his unit were killed on one mission, including a very close friend, and in a following mission they came under attack with one soldier killed and three others in his unit badly injured. I was told you can't show emotion for these guys, you know. you got to suck it up, he said. These guys are hurting, and you're going to have to take care of them. He found later that what he had sucked up would not stay down. It started coming out in nightmares and outbursts of anger and violence when he was on leave at those he loved most, his family. Still, the message he received was to avoid asking for help because he might lose his security clearance and be held in suspicion by those superiors he was trying to impress. 
I'm old enough, have enough experience, he thought. He'd been in the army for 12 years. I can deal with it. It'll pass. His wife said he thought he should just be able to dust himself off and move on. He felt like it was his fault. It's not his fault. The army, after 12 years of him passing their psychiatric exams, discharged Luther on the basis of a pre-existing personality disorder when he began to complain about the symptoms of PTSD. Suck it up. You can't show emotion. Deal with it. It will pass. Dust yourself off and move on. And if you're hurting, my God, do not ask for help. Luther testified before the House Committee on Veteran Affairs on behalf of the organization he created called Disposable Warriors. The lack of care and concern coupled with the stigma of weakness for asking for help that we have allowed to be put on us has to be totally removed. Then and only then will we see the veterans' homelessness rate drop, the active duty and veteran suicide rate drop, and the skyrocketing rate of divorce decrease. Unquote. <clears throat> it is no secret that we need to liberate ourselves from the view of manhood that enslaves us and perpetuates the horrors that we read about every day. We need liberation from that which only guarantees what has been. We need to hold up those men who have lived out the values of compassion and communication and courage to stand up to injustice and the courage also to admit vulnerability. It is not only about what needs to end, but also about what can be. It strikes me that whether we were enfolded by a father's love or discovered it in places we would never have expected or lived without a father's love, love and feel the absence as a yearning presence of its own, the common denominator of any of these circumstances and of all of the myriad of possibilities in between is love. The questions of what it is to be a good father, to be a good man, are only slightly more specific than the question of what it means to be a good human. How, given the particularities and peculiarities of who we are and our roles and responsibilities, do we best express our love for one another? For myself, I feel that a part of that needs to be expressed through challenging the distorted and all too often accepted ideas about what it is to be a man, through resisting and working to overturn those norms that work against our ability as men to accept and express love, that keep us from working to heal ourselves and to heal a broken world. I loved what Terry Troop shared during Joys and Sorrows a few weeks ago. Terry was with family after his sister had died, and at one point, his 24-year-old grandnephew said, it's good to be in a family where it's okay for men to cry. 24 years old. 
And that was unique enough in this culture for him to note that. It was important enough for him to say it out loud. And he was wise enough to recognize it as a gift. So on this Father's Day, speaking as a father, I can tell you absolutely, positively, nothing. I have struggled with how to do it right at every stage of our son's life well into adulthood. I fight off regret about things I did or left undone. I worry about the effects of wrestling with all my own issues on his life. I struggle to bring my highest self to the task of parenting, to act always in his best interest and not my own comfort, to face the hard stuff. I love him deeply, which can be a profound joy and can also ache like no other ache I've ever felt. I have sometimes clumsily tried to take responsibility for his happiness and have sometimes mistakenly sought to make him responsible for my own. I respect him and I judge him too harshly. I've snapped at him about little things and I've let him off too easily on big things And I nag him, and I joke with him, and I don't listen to him, and I do listen, and I keep trying to be that guide whom love sustains. There is a paradoxical nature to all of life that finds a unique expression in parenting. Cat Stevens, speaking about that song, Father and Son, said, Some people think that I was taking the son's side. But how could I have sung the Father's side if I couldn't have understood it too? I was listening to that song recently, he said, and I heard one line and realized that that was my father's, 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 father speaking. Beauty is before me and beauty behind me. There is something beautiful in the honest striving, in the missteps and unforeseen lessons, in the coming to recognize one another, parent and child, as separate persons unto ourselves, and realizing that it is no small purpose to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is.